we're going to talk about the device trial. Our airways are not routine. They're not elective. They're challenging. Intuitively, I have fault with that. The objective of this study is to compare first pass success rates. I think this is a change of practice kind of paper. Direct laryngoscopy is still the most common method. Well, hang tight here. Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. We are into the summer months here in North America, in the US. We've hit July and summer season. Many of you are out and about taking family vacations. And also many of you are new listeners here to the podcast as we're welcoming in so many new health staff rotating across the country, regardless of your specialty. Thanks so much for joining us here on CCPEM. We've got a really great discussion for you on this podcast, and we're going to talk about, as we normally do, a hot off the press study that may be changing our practice, specifically with respect to rapid sequence intubation and laryngoscopy. Does video laryngoscopy win when compared to direct laryngoscopy? We're going to talk about the device trial. Now, before doing so, let me bring in my co-host for this podcast, Dr. Peter W., Dr. John Greenwood, and also welcoming a really important guest, Dr. Rashid Al-Hadi. And we'll get to him momentarily. But Peter, how's it going, this podcast? Things are going well in New Orleans for this podcast. We are full bore summer. So it's hot and it's humid. And New Orleans just finishing up celebration of Pride Month and Juneteenth. So a lot of positive things going on in New Orleans. Standing. Turning our attention to Philadelphia, Dr. Greenwood. Hey, guys. Good to see you all. And thanks for having me, as always. Absolutely doing great up here in Philadelphia. Not a whole lot new. As Peter was saying, we're getting into the summer months. So Rashid and all of us were actually talking about this is the time when trauma maybe gets a little bit more hair. We see a little bit more uptick in our trauma ED admissions. So just kind of preparing for that, and but overall doing really well. Sounds good, John. Now, many of you know that Dr. Rodriguez is one of our co-hosts here. He has some other things to do during this recording. He's taking care of some academic stuff and stepping in for him, the very capable Dr. Rashid Al-Hadi, who is the creator of those wonderful agendas, the handouts that you see each podcast that we post on the website. First off, thanks, Rashid, for taking care of all of those agendas. We greatly appreciate it. And secondly, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you recording here with us. And we know you, but perhaps all those listening in don't. So maybe take a few minutes and just introduce yourself. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast and giving me the opportunity to join you all. My name is Rashid Al-Hadi. I'm an emergency medicine resident, a rising fourth year, so coming to the end at UCSF, San Francisco General Hospital. And I'm originally from the Monterey County in California, born and raised, and I've had the opportunity to train pretty close by a couple of hours away in San Francisco. And so very grateful for that. I have a strong interest, obviously, in critical care medicine, a lot to learn in the field, but those are my plans like for the future. And so I'm grateful again to be here with you all and be with and learn from the experts, as well as try to bring this emergency medicine in different ways. I'll say my end in San Francisco, we're really excited right now with July being here and the 
new interns starting their first shifts in the emergency department. I've been in the surgical ICU, but I haven't gotten a chance to work with them, but it's an exciting time for all of us. So again, thank you for having me excited to jump into the podcast. Outstanding. Yes, we are all excited as we have new residents in all of our individual institutions. So really well wishes, best of luck to all of you starting here in this month. Well, let's turn our attention now to the focus of this podcast. As I mentioned, we're going to cover the device trial, something that many folks, not only in the U.S., but around the world have been talking about over the last two weeks since its publication online in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Precker and Dr. Driver are the primary and secondary author, along with many other folks in the device trial. Specifically, the title is Video versus Direct Laryngoscopy for Tracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Adults. And now before diving into the study, Rashid, I'm going to turn things over to you. Kick us off here during this podcast and just set the background. Why is this important to discuss? Yeah, so endotracheal intubation, it's performed throughout the hospital and in the pre-hospital setting including in the emergency department, the intensive care unit, and of course, in our operating rooms. It's very common. Over 1.5 million critically ill adults in the U.S. outside of the operating room undergo endotracheal intubation annually. And so sometimes the techniques involve direct laryngoscopy traditionally, that being the most common method of intubation worldwide, approximately 80% in the EDs and ICUs. But in recent years, video laryngoscopy has become more popular and its use has increased. It's a form of indirect visualization of the vocal cords during endotracheal intubation using a camera at the distal end of the laryngoscope that projects onto the digital screen. And one metric that we can use to evaluate the success of an intubation is the first pass success. And failure to intubate on that first pass can occur in 20 to 30% of the time in the ED or ICU. And we talk a lot about optimizing that first pass success and figuring out what we can do to maximize that to prevent complications with repeated attempts, including airway edema, traumatic airway, hypoxia, and of course, cardiovascular collapse. And the reason we're discussing this paper is because prior research has also been mixed in their results comparing video and direct laryngoscopy. And some have shown no difference, and some have shown benefit to one over the other. So overall, the objective of this study is to compare first-pass success rates of both direct versus video laryngoscopy in critically ill adults. That was outstanding. Thanks so much, Rashid, for giving us that background. That was important stats. Actually, one that caught me a little bit by surprise is how much direct laryngoscopy is still the most common method. I think many of us have been using, with increasing frequency, video laryngoscopy. But to really hear that still to this day, worldwide, 80% of ED and ICU intubations are via direct laryngoscopy was a little bit surprising. So I think those stats, the figures you quoted there, really bring this article into perspective and why it is an important contribution to the RSI literature. 
Well, with that, Peter, let's delve into the study itself. What is the device trial? You got it, Mike. So when we think about this important study by Driver and his multi-centered team, it is in fact multi-centered, it's unblinded, it's randomized, it's parallel group trial conducted at 17 sites. Now, seven of those sites were emergency departments, 10 were ICUs, and this occurred across 11 different medical centers in the U.S., So what kind of patients were these? Those included in the study included critically ill adults aged 18 and greater undergoing tracheal intubation. Who was excluded? Pregnant patients were excluded. Prisoners were excluded. If you had an immediate need for intubation without time to actually go into the randomization, you were excluded. And if the operator determined one technique was necessary over another, or that one was contraindicated, so we'll say that there was copious amounts of debris or secretions, then video may not have been used. And so if the operator chose to use a particular one or to remove one from consideration, that was done for patient care needs. The trial procedures. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one ratio to either direct or video laryngoscopy. The operator was instructed to use either video or direct laryngoscopy on the first attempt. The brand of video laryngoscopy, the blade shape or device type were not specified. They were actually left to the operator's choice. A trained observer gathered data between the time of induction and then followed it for two minutes after intubation. Before randomization was reported anticipated airway difficulty. So you had to check off whether you think this was going to be a difficult airway or not. After intubation was reported, the Cormac Lehan grade, procedural complications, and the number of previous intubations in the proceduralist career. So if you were the one intubating, you had to list the number of previous intubations performed. Now we look at the primary outcome. Primary outcome was first pass success, the single insertion of the blade. If a bougie or intubating stylet was used and the endotracheal tube. So the secondary outcomes, severe complications, hypoxemia, as noted to be a saturation less than 80% at any point in time during the procedure. And then hypotension, a systolic blood pressure less than 65 millimeters of mercury. So this isn't just a small blip, but a big blip, right? And then new or increased vasopressor use, periprocedure, you know, during this time, presence of cardiac arrest, and then death. Those were all the secondary outcomes that were measured. So a good primary outcome and a whole slew of secondary outcomes for these two groups. Outstanding, Peter. So this is a fairly big study looking at many sites, ED and ICU, one-to-one randomization, video to direct, and really not really drilling down to a specific type or blade shape, but really replicating what we do in clinical practice looking at first-pass success. All right. Well, John, now I'm going to turn to you. Was there a winner in the device trial? Well, we will see very shortly, huh? So in total, about a little over 1,400 patients met inclusion criteria after screening for almost 2,000 patients. And they were 
actually able to enroll 705 in the video laryngoscopy group and 712 in the direct laryngoscopy group. So pretty much 50-50 down the line. Now, what's really interesting, first and foremost, is that after they got to 1,000 patients, the data safety and monitoring board reviewed the data and actually recommended that the trial be stopped because there was such a significant difference between the VL and DL group. In fact, if you had to guess, well, I won't make you guess, I'll just tell you, which one you thought was better? Well, it looks like VL actually won the battle. So the video laryngoscopy group had a significantly higher first pass success rate at that first interim analysis. But let's look at the details a little bit more. Let's first talk about the operators who were using this equipment, because I think that's important. And, you know, overall, they were very well-matched characteristics between the groups. So there were 387 unique operators that were intubating patients for this trial. And the clinical specialty of these operators did have some variation. A majority of them, in fact, 70% of them were emergency medicine, about 25% were critical care medicine, and then a small percentage less than 5% were either anesthesia or another specialty. And the level of training here is worth noting. So these were mostly trainees. In fact, 72% of the operators here were residents, 24% were fellows, and about 2% were attendings. And I know there's probably some listeners here already getting some spidey senses and saying, well, wait a second, does this really apply to me? Well, hang tight here because I'm sure we'll talk about that and have some comments at the end. So let's talk about exposure to video laryngoscopy prior to intubation. So how much experience did these operators have? Most of them had prior exposure to VL before. In fact, 58% of the people doing the intubating VL was used 25 to 75% of the time in prior intubations. For about a third of the operators, video laryngoscopy was used primarily most of the time, over 75%. And when they actually did the intubation, specifically looking at that grading criteria that Peter was talking about for grade of view, well, VL gave a better grade of view, a higher proportion of grade one views. In fact, in the VL group, they got a grade one view 76% of the time compared to DL of only 44%. And a higher portion of grade two to four groups were found in the DL group. And there was a median of 50 prior intubations in both groups. So it's not like there were no intubations being performed. These were reasonable number of intubations performed in each group. Well, what about the patients? Well, overall, they were very well matched between both the VL and DL group. The median age was 55. And most of these patients, in fact, 70% of these intubations were performed in the emergency department. And almost half of these intubated patients were intubated for altered mental status. A third were intubated for acute respiratory failure. And the remainder were for either a procedure, cardiac arrest, or some other emergent condition. Now, anticipated difficulty of intubation, you know, I think that plays into sometimes the equipment that we're deciding to use. Half the intubations were anticipated to at least be moderately difficult, and a third were anticipated to be easy. So these weren't all intraoperative, relatively stable patients. These, I think, represent an emergency medicine patient population. So I already told you a little bit, but let's dig into that primary outcome. 
which was first pass success rate, which was higher in the VL group. In fact, first pass success rate was achieved in 85% of the VL group compared to 70% in the direct laryngoscopy group. Now, if you do the math, that calculates to an absolute risk difference of a little over 14%. And this was statistically significant. And if you look specifically at some of the subgroups, these are some important things. So what was the impact of operator experience on first pass success? Well, less than 25 intubations, those operators had a much larger risk difference compared to those with more experience or over 100 prior intubations. And this favored direct laryngoscopy. And you might ask, well, what about the location? Did the ED or the ICU matter? And there was still a statistically significant difference when controlling for the location of either ED or ICU that was both in favor of video laryngoscopy. And that was with about a 14% risk difference using VL over DL. And how about the anticipated difficulty of intubation? You might say, well, if it's an easy one, I'm just going to reach for my DL. Well, that still favored the use of VL. If the patient was anticipated to be an easy intubation, the risk difference of using VL of a first pass success favored a VL by about 12%. And if we scoot down to the difficult patients, it improved to 27%, almost 28% actually. So these are all aligning to be consistently in favor of video laryngoscopy compared to DL. Now let's look at those secondary outcomes just because I think they're interesting to take a look at. One of those being, were there severe complications? Well, no difference between VL and DL. How about exploratory procedure outcomes? Well, if we go through all the different ones, to be honest, I don't believe they're really all that many differences between them. The successful intubation without severe complications was 10% higher with VL. So a lot of this is, again, consistent with the primary outcome findings. And there was no difference in inserting an endotracheal tube or bougie between the two. So ultimately, guys, I think that we can say consistently video laryngoscopy outperformed direct laryngoscopy. What do you think, Mike? Well, we're going to get to that, John, in terms of the discussion, but those are the results, and I do agree with you and all of the things that you had said. But to be thorough here, when we talk about these papers, we do like to at least highlight some limitations, some of which have been already identified by the authors. So what really are some limitations of the device trial? Well, as we talked about, it was performed in the ED and ICU. So is this generalizable to the operating room? They didn't look at that, so that is one limitation when applying it to patients going into the OR, perhaps for elective procedures. Overall, looking at the operators, so you had an, a great breakdown, John, of the operators, their level of experience, and in general, because the majority, I believe over 90% were trainees, not surprisingly, they didn't have a robust number of intubations performed, and I think as you looked at the breakdown that you went through, John, really the more experienced operators, those that had well over 100 intubations, while still a demonstrated difference that was much lower than new learners coming in using either VL or DL. In terms of the overall methods or the study itself, 
well, not surprisingly, it was unblinded because you can't really blind someone to DL or VL. So unblinded study. And then in terms of overall powering, it was powered for first pass success, not necessarily for those severe complications. Those were secondary outcomes. So periintubation hypotension, periintubation cardiac arrest, or severe levels of hypoxemia. Now, a few other limitations is it does appear in terms of reviewing the study that many of these airways were secured using the bougie as well. And it's hard for me at least to tease out what the exact percentage is. It didn't look like it was all, but that was frequently referenced in the manuscript itself that I think nearly all of these intubations across these 11 sites, across these units had the utilization of bougie in addition to either VL or DL when securing the airway. So with those limitations in mind, we've gone through the background, the methods, the impressive results, and now some limitations. Let's go to our take-home points. So Rashid, I'm going to circle back to you. It's been a while since we brought you back in. So let me get your thoughts on you're in this setting in terms of over 90% of operators in this particular study. This is you. What are your thoughts on VL versus DL in the device trial here? Yeah, I think this is a great study, really well performed. And as a trainee, I think it says a lot about the power of video laryngoscopy. It was associated with a significant increase in first pass success. That was clear in the study. And I think especially as a more junior resident at some point, there's data here that shows that for this group, VL is even more helpful for the inexperienced intubator or airway manager in first pass success. And we also saw that for the anticipated more difficult airway, BL was even more helpful for those patients in first pass success. So I think as a trainee, I think there's, again, a lot of utility to video laryngoscopy in that number one, it's safe for the patient and I think there's something ethically to be said about that, doing what's right for the patient. And we get experience with intubating patients using this technology. And I just wanted to bring up, I think, one educational value to video laryngoscopy that's sometimes overlooked. And that for the non-hyperangulated blade, it can be used as a great educational tool if you turn the screen away and treat it as direct laryngoscopy. So you can treat this almost as a direct laryngoscopy. And if you need as a backup, swivel the screen over to you and use it as a video. And people can look over your shoulder and provide real-time feedback. So I think video laryngoscopy is awesome. And I plan to use it, I think, in my, in my practice. Great, great points. All right, Dr. Greenwood, your thoughts, your analysis, your take-home message of the device yeah. trial. No, absolutely. I think this is a change of practice kind of paper, and I don't think this applies only to academic institutions. I think it applies to pretty much all of us in the ED and ICU who, let's be honest, I would classify us as occasional intubators. This isn't something that we're doing every shift, but certainly more than some. But let's be honest, our airways are not routine. They are not elective. They are challenging. And any sort of adjunct we can use to improve Prove the likelihood of success. I agree with Rashid. It's for patient safety first. That's the most important. 
Now, one thing that I think is funny is you mentioned the use of a bougie. Now, I just thought back and I remembered we did review the bougie trial back in 2021. And the main author on that one, well, Brian Driver. So I'm sure with the introduction of that trial, there was a lot of discussion about using bougie first as a intubation tool. And I suspect that that probably played into the high utilization of bougie as opposed to necessarily as a rescue strategy that might be used in more difficult airways. So my take-home point, bottom line, certainly reinforces my current practice. We use video laryngoscopy both in our emergency departments as well in our HVICU. Occasionally, if the scope or the screen or the equipment isn't readily available, I'll still use direct laryngoscopy, but it is by far a less frequent event than even just when I was doing training 10 years ago in emergency medicine. So it's incorporated in my practice routinely, and I'm happy that we have it. Outstanding thoughts, John. All right, Peter, bring us home. So a couple of things. I would agree with both Rashid and John on two major points. The primary one being that this patient safety push is self-evident, right? And I think that we had a gestalt or a feeling with video that this is where it was going to go. And it's nice to have the evidence to tout it. Rashid's point about trainees who really demand to become skillful in direct laryngoscopy. Some of the newer technology allows the screen to be turned towards the supervisor or the facilitator and let the individual with the video laryngoscopy actually use it as direct. And I'm a huge fan of that to accrue that knowledge and that feedback. The study wasn't designed to tell us where people become more expert with intubations, but it does suggest that somewhere around 100 tends to be an inflection point, perhaps. Again, not powered, not designed to answer this, but it brings this up. And I think that that's important. But one of the things that I kind of have an issue with in this article is if in fact you didn't have first pass success, it did not lead to a serious complication. Intuitively, I have fault with that. I think that that's unlikely that because we know that even 60 seconds of hypoxia can be associated with poor neurological outcome. And so same with hypotension. So if there's a delay in first pass placement, I would think in our critically ill patients, we need to be tuned into that. We're just not really to rail on the study, just not enough patients studied clearly to say that if we had a sicker cohort, we wouldn't have seen major complications in those patients who didn't achieve a first pass benefit. And so again, I think video gives you that first pass benefit. We need to argue more vociferously for video laryngoscopy for our patients because they frankly deserve it. Well said, all three of you. There's not much that I'm going to add to that other than that I definitely prefer and use video laryngoscopy, whether I'm doing it on my own, if it happens to be I'm working a shift where our residents are off in conference or working together with our amazing residents at Maryland overseeing their intubations, almost exclusively using video. And certainly I get the need to become proficient in both VL and DL. That is important depending on where everyone goes and 
resource limitations and taking that into account. But I think that the results are impressive, despite even some of the limitations and the drawbacks with respect to first pass success, patient safety, and ultimately getting patients intubated and then moving on to address their underlying physiology or for what's needed from a resuscitation standpoint beyond securing the airway. So a very, very important paper. I'm sure it's going to be one of the ones that is highlighted quite frequently throughout 2023 as one of the key papers from a ED or EM resuscitation and critical care literature from the current year. So gentlemen, outstanding, outstanding discussion. My thanks for taking us through the device trial. Rashid, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for putting together the agenda. All of you listening, recall that if you can go to the website, you've clicked on this podcast to listen to while you have the associated PDF that we've just gone through here on the device trial. So really great job, Rashid, on that. In the discussion, Peter, John, my thanks as always for robust expert insight into yet another hot off the press article. Well, with that, let's bring this podcast to a close here as we begin July, as we begin a new academic year for so many. And once again, our best wishes for great success to all of our incoming interns throughout the U.S., and also worldwide. Our best, and we will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.